Hello and welcome to Theoretically Theatrical. In this series, we peek behind the curtain and explore the world of performance. Today, we'll be taking a look at ancient Greek theatre. I was inspired to look into this subject by Philip Rowe and his podcast, The History of European Theatre. One theory states that the tradition of theatre grew out of the worship of Dionysus. This involved public displays and processions, with activities ranging from singing to tearing animals apart with their bare hands, to parading giant models of penises around. These were all believed to be part of his cult. The transition from cult rituals to cultural activity may have been represented in The Bacchae by Euripides. In the play, Dionysus travels to Thebes in disguise to punish his mother's family for ruining her reputation, post-mortem. The chorus, playing the role of the god's followers, the Maenads, encourage the people of Thebes to start practicing his rituals and demonstrate the rewards that come from following him. His mother's brother, who is now the king of Thebes, refuses to acknowledge Dionysus, and in retaliation the god sends all of the women of Thebes into a religious ecstasy, and they leave the city to join Dionysus's cult. <laughs> Sounds a bit like a giant hen do. The king continues to try and oppose this new group, but the city becomes increasingly lawless. After several encounters between the pair, Dionysus convinces the king to see the rituals for himself, in disguise. The king hides in the tree in a dress to spy on the women. Dionysus then points them out to his followers, which include the king's mother and sisters, and they pull him out of the tree and tear him apart, thinking that he is a lion. Everyone that is left is banished or turned to snakes. Sisters In this play, we see a fictionalised representation of how Dionysus's cult grew from a small movement that was mainly composed of women and slaves to an established part of the pantheon that was worshipped by leaders and kings. In real-life Athens, the Dionysian performative processions became more narrative-driven as singers began to act out the stories they were telling. The processions were seen as the responsibility of female worshippers of Dionysus to organise and participate in. Singing, dancing and mime became common features. There is a legend that the first actor was named Thespis. They lived their best life, stepping out of the crowds and started to act out the stories. Apparently, their fellow performers loved this bit of improv, and soon Thespis began to use masks to portray different characters. Parallels have been drawn between this and African masks that were used in dance-based rituals in the same time period. The Greek masks were made from linen and often had wig-like hair attached to them. The cast of an early Greek drama would include a primary actor who was accompanied by the chorus. The chorus encouraged the audience to experience extremes of emotion and functioned as a communal voice commenting on the actions of the play. Get on with it! We're going to take a closer look at the everyday running of the theatrical productions, and to help us discuss this, we are speaking to Alexis, a sponsor and producer of Greek dramas from ancient Athens. Thank you for making time to speak to us. I only have 20 minutes, so can we keep this quick? Of course. What does your job involve? Well, in 6th century Athens, a competition was set up where playwrights would submit their works with the aid of sponsors. Our job was to, you know, get together a production team, uh, hire actors, find props, work out the budget, and, uh, you know, basically everything that wasn't writing or directing. (laughs) Is that why you've got a box of cupcakes? Yeah. 
I'm also in charge of catering. So who else is needed for the plays? Well, by this point, shows had three main actors, uh, still accompanied by the chorus, who would now occasionally dance as well as sing. It's not more work for me. That's fine. Uh, and guess who has to mend all their costumes, you know, when they put their foot through them? What motivates you to become a sponsor? Well, while there are some material rewards at these competitions, you know, including wreaths and banquets, the real prize was glory and cementing a legacy. They became such large events that later a separate competition was set up just for comedies. Could you tell us a little bit about the architecture of your theatres? Uh, yeah. Uh, all our theatre spaces are outdoors. Uh, we call them amphitheatres. There is a seated area for the audience called a theatron, a stage for the chorus, which is the orchestra, and a slightly raised area for the main cast. Uh, there'll also be an altar, since this is still a religious event. Don't care what the critics say, it is. Mm -hmm. And a dressing room for the actors to change masks and costumes. Uh, above the stage is the deus ex machina, where actors play and gods can be lowered from. These styles of theatre, they promote connection, you know, between the performers and the audience. Thank you so much for teaching us about your work. You wouldn't happen to know where my next two guests are, would you? <laughs> They're probably destroying my set. <laughs> I'll go and drag them away for you. While we wait for them, I'll list the three principal dramatic forms. Tragedy, which explored human nature and catastrophic events. Comedy, which featured laughable people and mistakes without pain. And satire, which was a joking tragedy where the chorus undermines the drama. Each of these forms used distinct styles of masks to accentuate the dramatic elements. <sighs> Found them! Excellent! Then, as the Greeks did, let us begin with tragedy. Alexis, can you bring them in? If you could stand here, and you here, no, here, here. No need to hurt me. I know my way around a stage. Please welcome Aristotle and Aeschylus, our experts on Greek tragedy. It is very gratifying for one's talents as a theatre maker to be acknowledged. But who is this man? I haven't heard of any plays by him. Well, my book... The Poetics is arguably the first example of literary critique. A critic? Of course I'd be on the show with a critic. My main point is that theatre is incredibly valuable to a democratic society. Never mind. You're now my favourite person. How would you define a tragedy? I consider a tragic play to be an imitation of an action that is serious, complete and of a certain magnitude. The language embellished with each kind of artistic ornament. The heroes of Greek tragedy must be people who are trying to do good and also be recognisably flawed in a way that is relatable to the audience. A play has to stand on its own. Only a weak poet relies on callbacks to a previous work. We are concerned with the actions of nobility, great leaders and mythic heroes, we explore only the most extreme of human actions and emotions. A mother murdering her child. Brother against brother. Like our characters, we exist in a flawed world. Human actions lead to many of these flaws, and our plays encourage the audience to try and counteract or fix these mistakes with their own actions. The ideal is to have a noble and illustrious character whose misfortune is brought about not by vice or depravity, but by some error or frailty. You mentioned that these plays were useful to society. The action of the play inspires feelings of pity and fear in the audience, and this is a proper way to purge these emotions. I have frequently brought an audience to tears. Probably not for the reason he thinks. 
Catharsis allows people to express and process difficult emotions. By working through them in a safe space, it makes the audience stronger and better prepared to face them again in the real world. It can also be an intellectual act. By analysing the actions of the characters and witnessing their catharsis, the audience comes to rational conclusions about the moral quandaries. What do you think is the key to making a good, tragic play? The most important aspects are the plot, character, diction, thought, song and spectacle. Spectacle is least important, because we don't want to look gaudy or cheap. Overemphasizing effects just looks desperate, darling. Actually, um, I wanted to have a quick word about the budget. Not now. <sighs> and the most important aspect is the plot. Show, don't tell, darling. We have to see the character recognise the consequences of their action and melt into a puddle of suffering and self-loathing. Could we illustrate some of these ideas by talking a little about your cycle of plays, The Arrestia? Oh, yes. My magnificent trilogy about the curse of the House of Atreus. Could you give us a brief summary? I was inspired by the myths around Agamemnon's family. It was a full house of disasters. The father, Agamemnon, sacrifices his daughter, Iphigenia. The wife, Clytemnestra, kills the husband, and the son, Orestes, kills his mother. Both of the spouses were cheating on each other, and there is a lot of incest and royal backstabbing. Then the Furies turn up and punish the huge amount of family murder and chase Orestes all over Greece. Then I made an incredibly subtle point about the importance of trial by jury. It comes out of nowhere, and the scene change is a nightmare. Athena forces the Furies to have a trial instead of murdering Orestes. The arguments are well thought through and put the audience in a moral quandary. Yeah, no. Apollo argues that mothers just carry the baby, so the children don't owe them anything. That is illogical. And there is a staggeringly sexist verdict where they decide that killing a husband is worse than killing a mother. In my defense, that's fair. I was a shit. Orestes is set free, and the Furies are transformed into goddesses of marriage and baby-making to fit the sexist stereotypes. In each of these three plays, the action is far more important than the characters, who are cardboard cutouts. Th that is simply unfair. Really? You called women ovens with boobs. You don't have the high ground here. Touché. The characters are all from the nobility, and they are all murdered or tormented because of a failing or wrongdoing. Thank you for speaking to us today, gentlemen. Now I'm going to send you away with Micheline Vandor, who is going to talk to you about women's liberation in theatre. Have fun! Now let's lighten the mood. Please welcome Aristophanes, the father of comedy. If you have selfish, ignorant citizens, then you get selfish, ignorant leaders. Did you steal that from George Carlin? Can't have. He's not been born yet. Your writings are the earliest surviving comedies that we have. Can you tell us more about your chosen genre? Comedy grew out of satire, which is bawdy and rude because you can only put up with so much tragedy before you start to think gouging your eyes out is a great idea. If you don't wave a fake phallus in their faces before the end of the night, then the whole audience will reenact the last scene of Hamlet in desperation. Nothing cheers up an audience like a giant schlong, and since everyone knows that satyrs are the rowdiest of creatures, we dressed our choruses up as them. 
And your comedies grew out of this tradition, right? With some key differences. Setting a play in the past is so last year. The present is all where it's at. Satire plays were happy just to throw their world into disarray with one swipe of a mighty papier-mâché Dingwallace. Comedy uses our wizard staff to restore order at the end. Now, you were famously taken to court because of your controversial plays. How did you feel about that? I am a comedian, and so I will speak of justice, no matter how hard it sounds to your ears. And to thank that Burke who wasted my day with court proceedings, I gave him a cameo in my next show as a sausage seller. You seem to enjoy playing with surreal imagery. It highlights the parody and satire. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've been reading your prop list and... You want a net how big? Just large enough to cover a house. You can get that, right? Oh, and any luck finding a dung beetle large what? enough for a man to ride on? What? What? Uh, I'll just go and ask Kafka if we could borrow his, huh? Mm. Comedic playwrights like yourself love to utilise fantastic special effects, ridiculous costumes and frequently phallic props. Everybody loves a comedy dong. Yeah. Prop department has a room full of pocket snakes. You were also credited with creating the Parabus, where an actor speaks directly to the audience. Indeed. It makes the characters far more relatable. And speaking of relatability, I had had enough of kings and rulers. The average citizen has more narrative potential in his toe clippings than a politician. Mm, quite right. You noticeably targeted influential people that you considered to be corrupt or arrogant. Were you ever worried about retaliation? Not at all. The scenarios I wrote were so over the top that I was protected. But I knew that they would see my plays, and the kicker was that they had to sit in the front row. <laughs> Everyone got to watch them squirm, and more importantly, they were publicly held to account. You were also a strong critic of the Peloponnesian War and the men and systems that kept it going. That was the inspiration for Lysistrata. In the play, the women of Athens are sick and tired of the war with Sparta. No security, no money, and no men. <laughs> well, that last one probably wasn't too much of a blow. We do have all these prop trouser trumpets just, like, lying around. No men! What could be worse? They had to come up with a plan to save their city. They barricade themselves into the Acropolis with all of the money and hold a strike. They won't have sex with men until the war is over. Hmm. And so they won't be too lonely or bored. They invite women from Sparta and Corinth for a sleepover. Just gals being pals. Sure. <laughs> then they make this oath. I will withhold all rights of access or entrance from every husband, lover, or casual acquaintance who moves in my direction in erection. These women mock social conventions and work to make a better life for everyone. Champions of peace and an enemy to war. Lysistrata speaks so eloquently of brotherhood and the absurdity of the conflict. Yeah, but didn't you write that the men only come to a compromise because the goddess of reconciliation is doing a striptease in the corner? Well, yeah, but in my defense, I wanted to see a naked woman. Well, I think I just found our giant dung beetle. Apart from that, a happy ending is had by all. Aristophanes, you were truly excellent at combining societal thought experiments and high ideals with fart jokes and giant comedy tallywhackers. Oh, come on. We have to get you fitted for horns and wings. So what do the plays tell us about ancient Greek society? 
Well, we know that the plays were used to explore difficult questions and put forward ideas about life and morals. They also seem to encourage action. In theatrical spaces, societal issues could be discussed in a way that they couldn't be in everyday life. We can see from the plays that we discussed that while women were considered low in the social order, they were frequently depicted as strong and powerful figures in their community. We see well-written personalities portrayed as intelligent and rebelling against a social structure. This might potentially have been intended to shock or disgust the audience, but we can't know for certain. While it is commonly held that women were not allowed to watch these plays, Dover believes that women, children and non-citizens could attend, but only after all the males that wanted to watch were seated. Women didn't have a political voice or even physical mobility, but they were responsible for organising and performing in religious rituals. These female-driven stories, while written by male playwrights, would still have been a very provoking production. While it's believed that women were not actors in Athens, Wilson has found evidence in pottery paintings that suggest that they performed as part of an orchestra. He also suggests that in more rural parts of Greece, women certainly acted more openly. Greek theatre was fundamentally political. The role of the chorus was used to portray the voice of the community. By having them interact with important figures of history and myth, it demonstrates the power of the community to affect change. In my opinion, that is something that is still a part of theatre today. We've only scratched the surface of ancient Greek theatre. I'll say. And I hope that we can return to it again someday. For now, I encourage you to go and listen to The History of European Theatre, a podcast by Philip Rowe. He goes into far more detail over a series of episodes. I'll leave a link to his show in the description. Thank you so much for listening. In Theoretically Theatrical, Ancient Greek Theatre, the presenter was Rosie Beach. Alexis, the producer, was played by Ariana Ellis. Aeschylus was Katrina Scott. Aristophanes was Ellis Jameson. And Aristotle was played by Plywood. This has been a Yorick Radio production. <laughs>